Welcome everyone to our May 2022 edition of the Mercer Private Wealth podcast. My name is Kerry Williams and I am very excited today for our conversation. I'm joined by Marshall McAllister, my colleague from Mercer Private Wealth. Marshall, I know you've got a bit of history with our guest today and I want to touch on that history a little bit, but I have to say that I know I'm going to learn a ton today from our guest. You, I'm sure, in the past in hosting, Wade, have learned a ton from him. Did you think, you know, almost a decade ago when you had Wade out for a couple of events that he would continue to become such an important researcher in the retirement income space? Yeah, well, I'm really glad to uh, uh, have Wade join us on our, on our podcasts uh, today. And yeah, Carrie, I, I, I'm, I'm, I was certain that Wade was going to be a, a bigger influence from when I first started reading his research more than a decade ago. Um, I used to be a part of the Edmonton CFA Society, um, and I was helping organize some educational events for the CFA community here in, in Edmonton. And uh, Wade was kind enough to come to Edmonton uh, a couple of times, once for a, uh, a private wealth um, full day uh, information kind of learning session, and then another one for a, uh, a lunch um, information kind of uh, session as well. So. Um, Really glad to see uh, Wade, uh, uh, or actually hear Wade on our call today, and uh, um, yeah, learn about what what's going on in his in his life as well. Yeah, Wade, let's bring you in on this. Thanks again for joining us today. Did Marshall put you through an Edmonton winter when he brought you out? Do you remember, or uh, was he kind enough to make it spring or summer? Well, I do remember it was pretty cold, although maybe kind of not as cold as I might have imagined it was going to be. That, that, that <laughs> might have been spring, though, if it was... Uh, it was probably <laughs> spring. <laughs> it's still pretty chilly. Yeah, got what to the we... hotel and looked out at the icy landscape around. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Where do we find you today, Wade? Uh, I'm calling in from Dallas today. I moved here shortly before the pandemic began, mainly for business travel reasons, which all went away shortly after moving, but... Uh, it's been a nice location, centrally located to get around North America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. Are you expecting to do more travel as as things seem to open up here kind of post-pandemic or what, what does that look like for you? It is starting to pick up again somewhat slowly. I, I've had a few trips at this point. My first one, I think, was back in March. And actually, I'm kind of in a lull right now where I don't have any business trips for about a two-month period. But as we get to the fall, I'm anticipating more pickup on on the business travel side so your research specialization has been in, in retirement income and i'm really curious like how how did that come about for you where what was the impetus for getting that that particular interest sure well partly it was just personal financial planning interest of starting to think about saving and planning for retirement and then in graduate school i I focused on, in the U.S., the, the Social Security, our, our big national government pension, uh, was talking about privatizing a portion of that and creating more like a defined contribution account for part of the Social Security payroll taxes. So in analyzing how that type of proposal might work, that was really the foundation of what eventually became my area of focus, which is really just writing computer code to simulate how different retirement income strategies may perform and to be able to compare and contrast the different approaches. So it really evolved out of just by luck, partly after finishing my dissertation, I then, I lived for Japan in 10 years. And at that time was focusing more on pension systems for developing and emerging market countries, but in wanting to move back to the United States, kind of stumbled into this new field in the, in, in the academic world of financial planning and specifically retirement income planning. It just really all stemmed from finding that people were interested in this type of research, which is a, a new development for academics. They're not used to having people interested in the type of research they're doing, but retirement income planning is very applied. And so it has a lot of interest beyond academics. Yeah. It seems to me, uh, Wade, that, that the, the U.S. is really leading the charge kind of globally around this type of pragmatic research. Is that accurate or um, are other countries also uh, have interesting research in this area? What do things look like globally? Uh, well, I think for a lot of the world, there are still better safety nets and public pension systems 
and not necessarily exposing people to market volatility to fund their core retirement expenses in a way that, uh, yes, I, I do think a lot of the research in this area comes from the U.S. just because the U.S. has transitioned away from the traditional risk-pooled pension system into having individuals save in their own investment accounts and then have to figure out how to sustainably spend that throughout retirement in a way that in other countries are still more risk pooling, which takes away the need to plan to manage both longevity risk, not knowing how long one would live, as well as the need to understand how to invest and then how to take distributions from those investments. It's, it's a much bigger issue because there's so much focus on the individual having to be responsible for that in the United States. And Wade, you're, you're involved with a school that's connected to financial planning, research, and, and education. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my, uh, my day job is at the American College of Financial Services, and I lead our, it's the Retirement Income Certified Professional Program, which is a three-course program to educate uh, financial advisors, mainly in the United States, on retirement income topics. Like, we don't have a, a, a similar university in, in Canada that does that. Um, I'd be curious if you know of other universities around the world that have, a, have such a focus. Uh, well, yeah, there's two in the United States. It's the American College and then also the College of Financial Planning. That In the American College's case, we're approaching our 100th anniversary. We, in 1927, it came out of efforts at the Wharton School. At, or I don't know if it was named that at the time, but the business school at the University of Pennsylvania to professionalize the life insurance industry. So the American College was created to create what's called the CLU designation, Chartered Life Underwriter, which is an old fashioned term at this point. But it was really that effort to professionalize life insurance. And then in the hundred years since then, expanding to cover much more of the all different financial services. Yeah. Wait, it sounds like, I mean, there's a long history there connected to the life insurance industry, but retirement income planning and the research piece of that has really evolved pretty significantly in the last couple decades. And I would say even in the last few years, can you touch on a bit of the history around retirement income and how it's evolved? Um, for me, off the top of my head, it goes back to William Bengen's work, but um, is that really the right place to, th- to start and think about this, or how do you think about it? Um, yeah, I mean, well, that's definitely a starting point for much more of the practitioner applied research. In some sense, really, in the academic world, they weren't necessarily calling it retirement income planning, but this idea of a life cycle model, how do you make savings and Uh, consumption or spending decisions throughout one's lifetime, the idea of then saving for retirement, spending down those assets in retirement, and then finding that having some sort of floor of income and then investing on top of that for more discretionary types of expenses, that in some way can date back to the 1920s or so. Uh, In terms of saying what's the birth date of retirement income planning, I like to quote an article from Harry Markowitz from 1991. Harry Markowitz developed modern portfolio theory, the idea of building the diversified portfolio, asset allocation. And he was asked after winning the Nobel Prize, how does modern portfolio theory apply to household investors? And given that at this point, it was what financial advisors were learning. He said he never thought about it before. And after thinking on it for an evening, he realized modern portfolio theory was never intended to be applied to household investors. And really it's because modern portfolio theory is just assuming you're trying, it's assets only, you're trying to grow a pot of assets. The households, especially in retirement, face this asset liability matching problem. They have to fund spending goals. And that fundamentally changes the problem that they're trying to manage in a way that modern portfolio theory, though of course it's always better to grow wealth at a faster rate, it's only tangentially connected to the goals households have. And, and so you really have to look at a, a more expanded approach. And then three years later with Bill Bengen's 4% rule article, you could say that was a way to modify modern portfolio theory to try to manage the household problem in a way that it, it was just saying, rather than just choosing asset allocation in isolation, it was providing asset allocation recommendations based on what worked best to fund a spending goal throughout retirement. Wait, can you give us a recap of what that research um, reported? 
Mm -hmm. Sure. So that research, it's based on U.S. historical data. And I can come, the first article I did was to <laughs> expand that internationally and can talk about how Canada fits into this. But based on U.S. historical data, he was looking at how much could you spend as a percent of your initial retirement assets? And then that would give you a baseline spending amount that you could adjust for inflation and have your money last for at least 30 years in all the different rolling historical 30-year periods in the data. And what he suggested in that article is retirees should hold 75% stocks in no circumstances less than 50% stocks. And then they could comfortably fund at least 4%, like if they had a million dollars taking out $40,000, increasing that for inflation, and in all the rolling historical 30-year periods, that would have always worked. They would not have depleted their investment assets in any 30 year period. And it was the market returns from about 1966 to 1995 that triggered that worst case scenario. Now I, in 2010, the, the first article I wrote on financial planning was, but what if Bill Bengen had been from a different country? And so it was using different countries, financial market data. And this is based on global returns data going back to 1900. And the good news is the 4% will work in the US and Canada. <laughs> And that's it. In the other 18 countries in that data set, it did not work. But around the world, it only worked around two thirds of the time. And so that to me just left open this idea that the 20th century US market data is pretty unique in world history. And, and one characteristic of that will not only higher average stock returns, higher average bond returns, less volatility, lower inflation, but when there were market downturns, markets tended to recover faster than they necessarily have done in other countries. And so when you just broaden the perspective of how might financial markets behave, and also it would apply to, what if you invest or diversify internationally, uh, it speaks to historically a lower safe spending number than just US historical data would imply, or again, that just Canadian data would apply imply. Did that number get closer to three or? or? Even less than uh, well, if if you wanted a withdrawal rate that could have worked at least 90% of the time around the world and based on a 50-50 asset allocation, that number was 2.8%. Okay. Interesting. So wait, do you feel well, on the surface, those numbers seem to indicate that that retirees should be much more worried about. Um, how much uh, they're withdrawing from their portfolios. I know you've done a lot more research since then. Can you maybe touch on how research has evolved, either your own research or, or other retirees' research to sort of deal with that starting point of the 4% rule and recognizing that it's not a hard and fast rule, that, that there is some, some issues around uh, mm -hmm. those assumptions? Right. And, and so there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of assumptions. Some of them speak to using an even lower spending number, but then there's a lot of factors that would speak to using a higher spending number. I mean, just uh, on the, maybe you need a lower spending number issues. Like if you incorporate investment fees on the asset returns, if you incorporate taxes, the 4% rule is ignoring the impact of taxes. If you consider that maybe 30 years is not long enough for retirement, if you think about how investors may struggle to keep that high stock allocation that the 4% rule requires. And it just, just a few weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, Bill Bengen was interviewed and revealed that he's not able to keep that high stock allocation. He's now 20% stocks, 10% bonds, 70% cash, which is not an asset allocation that historically <laughs> could have supported something like the 4% rule. So there's all these concerns about, is that number too high? But then on the other side as well, the 4% rule uh, was designed to help manage this idea of sequence of returns risk, which is if I'm spending from the portfolio and there's a market downturn, I have to sell a bigger share of what's left. And that makes it much harder for my portfolio to recover, even if the overall markets recover. So it's those early years in retirement that really have a disproportionate impact on the success of my plan. The issue is the 4% rule uniquely maximizes the exposure to that risk. And so if you just have some flexibility, if I could just cut my spending a little bit after a market downturn, that can allow for a much higher initial spending rate. And also you have to think about like, what is the impact of the 4% rule just assumes 
you play this game of chicken with your investments. You continue to spend down your portfolio as it plummets towards zero. And then it's catastrophic if you spend all of your investment assets. If you have other reliable income sources from outside the investment portfolio, then it's naturally not as catastrophic to deplete your investments. And then that could speak to, well, you might be willing to take more risk. You might be willing to spend at a higher rate, even though that might deplete your investments more quickly. But if those, like if it's not catastrophic, if you deplete your investments, that could still be a trade-off that, that's worth taking and it could allow for a higher spending rate as well. Have you done research around the, the personality types of, of retirees that would, would appreciate uh, a, a more secure, safe retirement and, and how that connects into the plan that's created? Sure, sure. Yes, and that's actually some of the most recent work I've done with Alex Merguia, where we look at what are retirement styles or what are factors that contribute to someone's personality towards retirement. And, and right now, what we've been talking about is this total return strategy. And it's a strategy that resonates with individuals who are comfortable relying on the stock market to fund their retirements. They're fundamentally, it's this idea of stocks for the long run. If you hold on to stocks, they will outperform bonds. You'll get a risk premium. Now there's risk involved here, but they're fundamentally comfortable relying on that risk premium to fund their retirement. And they wanna keep their options open as much as possible. They don't wanna to commit to anything. They just want the flexibility to make changes. But what we find is the, the trade-offs here, if I'm, some people are not comfortable relying on, on market growth. They'd rather have some sort of contractual protection. And then also some people are actually comfortable committing to a strategy that they know will solve their lifetime need, even if it reduces some of the ability to make changes in the future. And so that leads to, there are other retirement strategies. Not everyone has to rely on just investments. They could, that there's this world of bucketing or time segmentation strategies, which just thinks about asset allocation differently, using bonds to cover short-term expenses and then stocks to cover long-term expenses. And then of course, there's the whole world of annuities about building a protected lifetime income floor in the same manner what a traditional company pension or private pension or government pension does to, to cover the core basic retirement expenses and then investing on top of that for more discretionary types of goals. And so now with a nationally representative sample of Americans in the, in the United States, we find that that total return strategy, the investments only diversified aggressive investment portfolios appeals or resonates with about a third of the population. And the other two thirds of the population is looking for something different when it comes to funding their core retirement expenses. It's, we found nationally in the US about 17%, like the idea of time segmentation or buckets, 35%, like what we call income protection, which is more about using simple income annuities to cover core expenses and then investing on top of that. And then 15% uh, are risk wrap, which individuals who are comfortable relying on the market, but want some sort of guardrail or commitment around that. And that's where, at least in the United States, there's been this growth of things like variable annuities with lifetime income protections that don't require an irreversible annuitization of the contract, but can still support lifetime income. And that would be kind of an example of building a risk wrap strategy using one of these variable annuities with living benefits to cover the basics and then investing on top of that. Just one quick question. I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to have the, 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 the word um, annuity explained because there's going to be some, some, of our, uh, some of our guests won't know what that is. Can you just describe what an annuity is? Sure. So an annuity is a contract usually with, or almost always with an insurance company that will exchange a premium. It doesn't have to be one, a one-time premium. It could be an ongoing premium, but often a one-time premium into a, a series of payments, which does not have to extend over the lifetime, but usually like the, the simplest income annuity is I pay a single premium to then be guaranteed to receive a monthly check for the rest of my life no matter how long I live. And if I don't live very long, I, I don't get as much out of the annuity, but then I didn't need as much to fund my retirement anyway. 
if I end up living a very long time, I continue to receive those monthly checks no matter how long I live. It, it's what a traditional company or private or government pension does, but it's just through a commercial insurance company. Yeah, That's the basic idea. <laughs> yeah, great definition. And then part of that, Wade, um, the sort of trade-off in, in the simplest form is we're giving up our capital in order to achieve that that income flow from, from the insurance company, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, with a simple income annuity, that is that irrevocable decision. I would just permanently give up the access to those funds that I put into the annuity to be able to then receive that monthly payment for as long as I live. And that's where there have been, and I don't know how prevalent this is in Canada, but there are now in the U.S., Annuities are also often used just for tax deferral in the U.S., and I don't know how the tax rules are in Canada. So there's a whole world of annuities where, by definition, any annuity allows for a series of promise payments, but they're often not necessarily used that way. They're used more just to get tax deferral. And then that's where now there are also these optional living benefit riders that can play the same role of supporting a lifetime income, but without making that irreversible decision. You could still decide, okay, I don't need the protected lifetime income. There's still some uh, assets left in that contract. I'd like to just terminate the contract and get my remaining funds returned. So there is more flexibility in the, the annuity world now, but the simplest income annuity does not provide any of that flexibility. Yeah, that's an interesting example, I think, going back to your earlier point about modern portfolio theory and um, uh, Markowitz's comment that that maybe it doesn't apply uh, to, to individuals. You, you've already brought in a ton of complexity around this. So we've got tax there. We've got some legacy um, uh, questions around capital and, and access to my capital if I provide it, uh, give my capital in order for guarantees. So we're starting to see some of that complexity already. Um, in your research to bring this back to, to where you started, where you've been able to 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 sort of segment uh, folks into into these four income styles, um, you said about a third of that uh, of those folks have some connection to this idea of total return. Does that change based on 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 asset levels, on on wealth, or what does it look like, say, for high net worth folks versus folks that uh, maybe haven't been able to save as much? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. We do, we, we test this for different demographic characteristics and find that usually there isn't much difference, but the two areas where we did find a difference are net worth and also gender. And, and so maybe what you're naturally expecting holds that for higher net worth individuals, they do tilt much more towards the total returns uh, investment-based strategy. And for lower net worth individuals, they tilt more towards the income protection, which is more the, the lifetime income flooring approach mm -hmm. strategy. And it's, so I said about a third of the population is total returns. But if you just looked at our highest net worth group was just anyone with a million dollars or more of investable assets, that was closer to 50% for the uh, total return strategy. And conversely, with our lower net worth categories, was tilting more closer to 50% in the income protection uh, quadrant. And then gender is similar, where men tend to be more of that total returns investment-based approach, and women tend to tilt more towards the income protection, building a protected lifetime income floor approach. How drastic was the difference in gender? That was also close to men were getting closer to 50% total returns and women were getting closer to 50% income protection. Whereas overall for the combined genders, it was about a third and a third with those two strategies. Interesting. Wait, do, do an investor's individual goals influence or change how they look at these types of things. I'm thinking, I know that uh, you've talked in the past about the four L's of retirement, this mm -hmm. kind of model you've got around, around different goals. How do you implement, or I shouldn't say implement, how do you integrate um, individual goals with some of these income styles? Yeah, great question. Either you've actually been reading all the research articles in advance, or you're asking really good questions because <laughs> these are all things that we did indeed look at. So the, uh, the four L's, we, we treat them as, in this article or in this research concerns, like the four L's are longevity. Will I be able to meet my basic expenses no matter how long I live? Lifestyle, 
Can I fully maximize my lifestyle to get the most enjoyment out of retirement? Uh, legacy, will I be able to meet a specific goal of leaving something to the next generation? But what we actually find is people tend to not care as much about legacy in, in many cases. And then liquidity, do I have reserves available to help manage unexpected spending shocks or spending surprises in retirement? And so those are the financial goals of retirement, but also how concerned are you about each of our, each of those goals is how we frame that. And what we find is for people who tilt more towards let's say total returns. So they're more that investments only maximizing portfolio growth and so forth. They care a lot more about lifestyle and they, they do tend to care more about legacy. They're not necessarily as worried about the longevity or uh, liquidity. And it's not necessarily that they just don't care about those things, but it's kind of like, you know, we're all highly concerned about getting oxygen to breathe, but on a day-to-day -day basis, we may not be all that worried about <laughs> whether we're going to be able to achieve that. So I think there's a sense of they've got that stuff covered. They are more focused on lifestyle and, and legacy. Whereas those who are more safety first, they want contractual protections. They're not as comfortable relying on the markets. They're more comfortable committing to a solution. They tend to be more concerned about uh, longevity, being able to cover their expenses, basic expenses, no matter how long they live, as well as liquidity, being able to manage. And this may be something that's more unique to the US too. <laughs> Americans have to be responsible for paying for long-term care, which can be a huge spending shock. And so people who are more concerned about that do tend to tilt more towards that safety first side. We don't have the government programs to pay for long-term care other than for those who become completely destitute, uh, then Medicaid would, would pay for long-term care. But you have to have effectively like less than $2,000 of assets before that, or there, there's a whole bunch of rules. They do vary by state, but it's basically, you can't have anything else to qualify for Medicaid. Such a huge difference between our two countries, isn't it? Um, I'd be curious where interest rates fall into the 4L and in, in your, your kind of quadrant approach to retirement uh, income. Because in, in our professional experience, talking about annuities, um, clients have said, I'm not sure that I'm really ready to commit to, you know, annuitizing a portion of my wealth at these interest rates. Um, so how does that fit into, to these four L's? Yes. Yeah, so that, well, that would kind of be something behind the scenes that might be just factors they're thinking about. It, it's more of like implementing a strategy than necessarily being the concern but yes, the, the issue with low interest rates is it just makes retirement that much more expensive, no matter the approach taken. Annuities become more expensive. Bonds become more expensive. If With stocks, if you think the risk premium isn't necessarily going to be higher, that would also then pull down stock returns to be X percent higher than the uh, whatever the lower interest rates are at that time. So it creates a fundamental challenge. It doesn't then necessarily translate into, well, this, like, I guess maybe the way this question could be framed is do people's retirement income styles change over time? Mm -hmm. And as best as we can tell, the answer is no, though you can't truly answer that question without following the same individual and repeatedly asking them, like maybe every two years or whatever the case may be. But what we find is there's no difference in styles between those who are pre and post retirement or in different age groups. So like the 50 to 60 year olds have the same breakdowns as the 60 to 70 and as the 70 to 80. And that was our main national sample was between the ages 50 and 80. And then also we had what's known as a natural experiment with our first iteration of the research. Uh, it was during the pandemic. We, we gave the survey in March, 2020 when everything like markets were at their absolute, probably the scariest it's ever been. I don't know, maybe September, 2008 was worse, but right in that same ballpark. And then we asked the same individuals, the survey in September, 2020, when things were looking a lot better, a lot of the market losses had recovered. There were now vaccines on the horizon and so forth. And based on those two very different environments, we found a high consistency about people maintain the same style with both of those surveys. So I don't think things like interest rates would affect somebody's style. 
it, it's more what is your style? And then based on what's available, how do you want to approach implementing that? So if you're income protection, the interest rate issue wouldn't change you to not be income protection and might change how you want to implement. You might say, okay, I do want to hold off on actually using the annuity until if I believe interest rates will be higher in the future. That's particularly fascinating considering that we often hear that investors who fill out risk tolerance questionnaires do change their answers based on where uh-huh. you're at. Yes. And, and so there's all kinds of issues with risk tolerance questionnaires. And, and that is a big one that <laughs> they don't, they're really measuring just how the markets are doing at the present. Uh, setting all that aside though, like a big concern we have about risk tolerance questionnaires that usually it doesn't get addressed is just this idea that Risk tolerance questionnaires are designed for accumulation. They're designed for pre-retirement. They're designed for modern portfolio theory. And post-retirement, it's risk tolerance questionnaires assume everyone is that total returns investment only, which as I was saying, only a third of the population seems to express those preferences. Risk tolerance questionnaires assume everyone, 100% of the population expresses those preferences because it doesn't incorporate other approaches. And it doesn't speak either to the concerns people have for retirement. It's only about how much can I stomach short-term market volatility, which of course is important, but it actually, my risk tolerance does not correlate with my concerns about outliving my assets. It does not uh, correlate with my concerns about having liquidity to manage unexpected expenses. It does link to lifestyle concerns, which makes sense that if I'm more risk tolerant in the traditional risk tolerance questionnaire framework, I am more worried about maximizing my lifestyle and enjoying, I don't want it the fear of missing out of like underspending relative to what I might've otherwise been able to do. Cause I really do focus more on giving the highest risk adjusted returns to have that most discretionary wealth to play around with, but it, it doesn't speak to the other concerns and these retirement income factors that we identified do seem to speak much better to the different retirement concerns that exist. So that's my biggest critique of risk tolerance questionnaires, uh, setting aside all these other issues that could be focused on as well. Wait, I've got a couple of questions similar to where Marshall was at with interest rates, but I'm wondering now if maybe the, these questions relate primarily to a total return approach and maybe you can you can, you can start with that kind of perspective, but we often get questions right now from clients with concerns around inflation or rising interest rates or starting retirement with interest rates that are low to start off with. Should retirees, based on the research uh, that you've done and, and, and research such as um, Bill Bengen's research, should, they, should we be concerned about these sort of, for lack of a better term, macroeconomic issues or... Um, or is that really around implementation of styles and, and looking at things? Where do those concerns fit in? Uh, yeah, so those concerns, they're not necessarily going to change someone's style. It's more about implementing the style. And then it's ultimately, is the 4% rule safe? That kind of thought process. May, I mean, you still could be total returns, but maybe the safe withdrawal rate is 3% instead of 4%. That's how those types of issues would be factored in. Uh, it's... It's, I've been concerned about this for a long time with interest rates so low, mm-hmm. the stock market valuations on the high side, it just suggests maybe market returns would be lower in the future than historical data really gave us a, a range to be able to understand what happens. <laughs> and we're kind of in uncharted waters compared to what the situation was in historical data. Remembering if you're testing a 30-year strategy, you need 30 years of data. And so we only kind of know how these strategies work for retirements beginning up to 1992, uh, at least simulated retirements beginning up to 1992. So I've had that concern. And then the saving grace though had been inflation was low, lower than for much of the historical data. And somehow that seemed to provide a positive impact so that something like the 4% rule may have survived some of these like retirements around year 2000 and so forth. Uh, but now that inflation's picking up again as well, that's, I, I believe, what pushed Bill Bengen to finally not throw in the towel, but to, I mean, his, his position was always, yes, there's no guarantee behind the 4% rule, but if you look at historical data, it survived a whole lot of different 
bad market environments, the um, Great Depression, the, the stagnation of the 1970s and so forth. And so it should be fine. Now that finally with the low interest rates, high market valuations, and now inflation's picking up, I think he's finally starting to take a step back and agree that we are in uncharted waters and the historical data that's been used to say the 4% rule works represents a range of historical situations that we're now outside of. And so it, it then, it wouldn't impact someone's style, but it could just then imp impact how they implement the style, which is maybe four per, you still believe in the total return strategy, but 4% may not be the right number to use. It would be something lower. When we're looking at these uh, 30 year timeframes, what percentage of the observations show retirees ending with you know, a significant amount of wealth? Uh, also another way to say underspending. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's a problem with the 4% rule as it's strictly defined. And it's, so if, if you can be, I was, the 4% rule assumes you never adjust your spending except for inflation, but you don't adjust it in response to market performance. And before I mentioned after a market downturn, you could cut your spending but also after a market gain, you could increase your spending. The 4% rule assumes you don't do that. So indeed, it's designed to protect you in the worst case scenario, but more often than not, your wealth is going to continue to grow throughout retirement. And in the US data where I've looked at this the most, uh, to just preserve the nominal wealth. So like if you retired with a million dollars to have a million dollars 30 years later, the 4% rule would have had you been able to have at least that same initial amount. I think it was like in 96% of the historical simulations. Now with inflation, if you wanted inflation adjusted, so if you're a million dollars, you wanted to have a million dollars of purchasing power 30 years later, the 4% rule would have given you at least that much in 50% of the historical cases. So it's designed to protect you in the worst case scenarios but then if you're not in the worst case scenarios, your money continues to, to grow throughout retirement and you leave a, a much larger legacy unless you're using some sort of flexible strategy where you increase your spending over time. That's, uh, you know, again, bringing it back to your 4L framework, you know, if, 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 as you mentioned that most folks are not putting a big weight on legacy, many folks are putting a higher weight on lifestyle that outcome that you just described then really underweights the, the, the goal that most folks have, which is enjoying retirement, having a lifestyle mm -hmm. that they want and, and overweights potentially this idea of legacy, doesn't it? It does. And so the practical solution, total returns is in the total returns world is just to apply some sort of flexible spending strategy so that you do adjust spending in response to market performance and portfolio performance. The 4% rule ultimately was just a research simplification to try to get a sense of what is a sustainable spending rate. But in practice, people would not be advised to stick so vehemently to <laughs> that rule throughout retirement. Yeah, I know in our practice, it, it, it's sort of the starting point of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Marshall, we, we typically try and educate folks as they retire around the starting point of 4% as the research starts, just as we did in this call. And, uh, and then go from there looking at, at goals as well as flexibility. And um, I think in your research way, you call it optionality, which I think is a really great um, uh, description of, of sort of the psychology of what folks are looking for here um, on that end. Do you want to just maybe highlight, you've got this matrix, I think, right, Wade, that looks at optionality as a piece of that. Do you want to highlight what your matrix kind of looks like in this case? Sure, sure. So what we were doing was just trying to understand how do people talk about retirement income? What are the kind of preferences or trade-offs that are being described in anything we could read about where people are describing retirement strategies? And so we, we came across, well, eight factors. We found that six of them seemed to help explain things, but that there were two that were overwhelmingly important. And so it was that the first one was that probability-based safety first, uh, comfortable relying on the market, wanting contractual protections. And, and that one, I really would have guessed in advance was important. But then the other primary factor surprised me. I never would have thought about it, but it was this idea of optionality 
I want to keep my options open as much as possible to make changes in the future, which of course everyone values that, but versus commitment, a preference for commitment. If I find something that will solve for my lifetime problem, I'm okay committing to that, even if it reduces some of the optionality involved, because now I can take this off my to-do list. It may help me to manage cognitive decline or if I'm the one running the family finances to help protect other family members, if something happens to me and uh, just, I feel better about my retirement committing to a strategy where I, I don't have to be thinking about this as much as on an ongoing basis. And so optionality versus commitment. And then what was really fascinating was just how this translated into the retirement strategies that are out there. So if you are probability based and optionality oriented, that's this world of I'm comfortable building an aggressive, diversified investment portfolio and sustaining distributions from that throughout retirement. If I'm safety first and commitment oriented, that is, I want contractual protections and I'm comfortable committing to the strategy. That's more the world of a simple income annuity to build the floor. And then with more discretionary assets, I can invest on, on the upside. And those are the two more natural strategies because there is a correlation. Optionality tends to be more correlated with probability-based safety first tends to be more correlated with commitment. And then the other two strategies always were described more behaviorally <laughs> to deal with these inconsistent preferences. So time segmentation evolved since the 1980s. It's this idea of having buckets. My short-term bucket just has bonds to cover my upcoming expenses. My long-term buckets have more stocks because I can leave them alone let them grow, not have to worry about spending from them if there's a market downturn for, for however many years before I, it takes us to spend on all my short-term or medium-term buckets and so forth. And that's speaking to safety first, wanting contractual protections, but optionality, wanting to keep options open. It's kind of a, a conflict there, but bucketing evolved as a way to help fulfill that by using bonds for the contractual protections for short-term stocks then become the source of optionality for long-term. And then the other quadrant is probability-based, comfortable relying on the market, but commitment-oriented, wanting to commit or put some sort of guardrail around the, the market returns. And also from the secondary characteristics, something that really shows up there as well as a tendency to be more worried about longevity. So wanting to better protect my future self. And so I'm comfortable with the markets, but I also want to commit. And that's in the, at least in the US since the 1990s, this rise of these living benefits for deferred annuities, like variable annuities could be a fixed index annuity as well. Something that gives me liquidity to the underlying assets, gives me some upside potential or upside exposure for those assets, but still puts a guardrail around that of I do have protected lifetime income, even if I get hit by a bad market return, even if I live a very long time. And so it's kind of the evolution of a behavioral strategy because mathematically you could just say income annuities and stocks is the more efficient way to approach that. But behaviorally, a variable annuity with a living benefit puts that all into one package to, to provide those characteristics, to appeal more to that. Uh, we call that the risk wrap quadrant, that wanting to wrap the, the risk exposure around, still seeking the risk, but wrapping that risk with some sort of protection. Wait, I remember when my father received his first Canada pension plan check um, early in his retirement. And I remember him telling me, um, this is the greatest money that I've ever received in my life. Um, <laughs> I'd like to know about how does happiness connect to, to pension assets versus liquid assets? Is there a way to measure um, the, the overall happiness of retirees that have these different sources of income um, mm -hmm. or even just sources of assets? Yes, and a colleague of mine, Michael Finca, has actually done a lot of research in that area. And the, the research, it kind of sounds like a commercial for annuities because what, what comes out of that is people do feel much happier uh, with a, a pension or with an annuity because it, it is, it's a paycheck, just like they earn a paycheck while working. They receive this monthly check. They, they're happier with that and they are comfortable spending that 
in a way that if I just see this investment portfolio and I have to take a distribution from it, I'm not happy spending principal. I'm not happy like spending from my nest egg. I'm also more worried about spending those funds. And so the, the kind of research in this area does suggest that these protected lifetime income streams through pensions or annuities can provide a lot more happiness as well as a, a license to spend those funds in a way that you don't necessarily see with drawing distributions from an investment portfolio. I know the optionality framework really seems to make sense um, around uh, annuities. I, I know, Marshall, on my end, I've had a, a few conversations with clients, Wade, where we have brought up annuities and discussed quite deeply into annuities and looked at rates and what, what payouts would look like. And um, I would say, at least here in Canada, many clients have chosen not to go the annuity route, even though psychologically it seemed to make sense for them. And in the end, the conversation typically ended with them just preferring or being afraid of giving up capital um, mm -hmm. and preferring the optionality and, uh, for yeah. an uncertain future. So if I had to guess, they probably did have <laughs> that optionality preference that, that we try to identify with the questionnaire, <laughs> but yeah. you're seeing that in practice. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the areas that Marshall and I have discussed around annuities, since we've talked about annuities quite a bit on this call, um, we have often talked about um, comparing, as an example, investing, if we were to hold the exact same assets, if we could, that an insurance company would hold in order to fund an annuity, the insurance company still has to charge a profit. And so we're less likely to have an equal return as an example, if we held the same assets as the insurance company, we'd probably do better on our own. But you've mentioned, I know in, in many of your analysis um, or your, your conversations around annuities that there's these mortality credits mm -hmm. in annuities that create benefits. Could you just touch on what mortality credits are? And if you can, can you talk about, if you have any experience around whether mortality credits outweigh the, the downside of, of having to pay an insurance company to manage this? Uh-huh. Right. And, and so it is important to just remember that annuities are a form of insurance. It's just usually we're used to having insurance against bad things happening. Uh, but the annuity, it's a good thing. If I live a very long time, that's when I receive this payout. And, and that's this idea of mortality credits. And so the simplest way to think about it is, suppose I'm worried I might live to 100. So if I'm going to self-manage that risk, I have to set aside the full, the, the present value of what I'm going to spend at hundred. I could account for maybe if, if I'm putting that in a bond, it could earn interest so that the amount I want to spend at age 100 with the interest growth is what it is. I, I get those funds at that point, but I have to earmark a big chunk of assets for that, which means I then am forced to spend less at younger ages because I have to reserve more for age 100. The insurance company has the same problem. They have to set aside funds to pay at age 100. But the difference is, suppose there's only a statistical 10% chance I'll live to age 100, just to keep the math simple. The insurance company gets to benefit from this idea of risk pooling or the law, law of large numbers, which is they don't know who's gonna live to age 100, but they know that 10% of their customers will live to age 100. So they only have to set aside 10% of the amount of what I would have to set aside if I'm going to be working under the assumption that I'm either going to be alive at 100 or I'm not. So if I'm self-managing that risk, I have to put 100% of what I'm going to need at age 100, uh, set that aside, whereas the insurance company only needs to set aside, say, 10% of that amount. And that's what allows then for the insurance company to be able to offer a higher level of spending uh, than I could do if I'm just funding my retirement through bonds. And so then the question becomes, it's kind of like, well, bonds are the starting point. I could build a ladder, to, a ladder of bonds through my planning age to fund my retirement. And it's not going to be a whole lot of spending that way. So the two methods I have to potentially spend more than that are, I could use an annuity, which the insurance company effectively buys the same laddered bond portfolio, but can allow for those mortality credits that those who end up not living as long, subsidize those who live longer, but that then raises a standard of living for everyone because 
the insurance company is paying everyone like they live to about their life expectancy, maybe a little bit higher than their life expectancy to account for the insurance fees. And then, or I could invest in the stock market and rely on that risk premium from the stock market as a way to spend more than bonds. And that's fundamentally getting into this total return versus income protection question. of uh, Total returns is more this feeling, I I'm gonna be okay just investing in the stock market to spend more than I could with bonds. Income protection is, no, I don't necessarily wanna rely on the stock market, but I can use an annuity to fund more spending than bonds. And they're both viable approaches. I think there's a sense in the investments world sometimes that because annuities are expensive or whatever else, it's almost assured that you could spend more with an investment strategy, but that's really not the case. It is really much more nuanced. And an example I'd like to use of somebody who is planning to live through age 100, if they're using a 50-50 stock bond mix, it's pretty much a coin flip. Like, can the investment portfolio fund as much as the annuity? Half the time, the answer is yes, and there'll be money left over at the end. But half the time, the investment portfolio would deplete trying to fund the same amount as the annuity. And so neither strategies, I mean, part of the distribution investments do better, part of the distribution uh, insurance is better, but it's kind of a coin flip on which part someone ends up in. So then it's it's whatever you feel more comfortable with would be the, the direction to go with that. Yeah, interesting. Um, I know, Marshall, we've got just a few minutes left. We don't, Wade, we don't want to keep you past your time, but um, I've got a couple questions. Marshall, anything on your mind you want to make sure we ask? Yeah, you uh, you go ahead, Kerry. Okay. Wade, you've got these great frameworks, I think, that are really starting to revolutionize how we look at retirement income. Where does a traditional financial planning plan fit in, in the framework that you look at. So I'm thinking of financial planning software that lots of advisors use where they're doing a 30 or 40 year retirement with a pretty steady return assumption and, and pretty steady spending. Maybe they adjusted a bit based on where clients have goals to help kids or, or buy houses or cottages, that kind of stuff. Where does that fit in, in these frameworks? Well, there's some really simple calculators, but those are usually just free online type calculators that don't give you much flexibility. I think most financial planners have software that is flexible to put in different goals at different times, spending changes over time and so forth. And that, that's really the right way to be thinking about it is what are my financial goals in retirement? Let's assess that. These are the liabilities I need to fund. What are the assets I have available to fund those expenses? And then no matter what kind of retirement income strategy you want to use, whether it is systematic distributions from investments, whether it is layering in annuity protections, and of course, not forgetting to put in other pen public pension income or other resources available, but then just looking at, can the plan be sustained even in the event of living a long time, which is why usually the planning age on that is going to be higher than life expectancies. And with a full range of, of potential market returns, which if it's software reporting a probability of success, usually you're looking for a high probability of success so that the plan would work even with poor market returns as well as with good market returns. And that's kind of the issue that you're looking at. Are you comfortable based on your assumptions about how long you might live and based on what the market returns might be? Are you comfortable that this plan is adequately funding your spending goals in this variety of potential circumstances that you could face. And that's ultimately what financial planning software aims to do. So there's a lot of good software out there that can do that. Yeah. Are you a fan of Monte Carlo analysis for this type of, of, of planning, Wade? How do you feel about Monte Carlo as a, as a tool here? Mm -hmm. I think it's a viable option. I am concerned about the Monte Carlo that just bases everything on historical data because that doesn't pick up some of the nuance around with interest rates being lower, you can't really get historical bond returns. And so even if you calibrate your average to the historical, you're still, you're not really getting a good representation of the lower bond environment that's more relevant for today. So I do have that concern about Monte Carlo, but otherwise I think it's fine. I've ultimately, I've kind of made a switch myself. The thing about Monte Carlo, there's kind of two ways you can approach this. With Monte Carlo, you look for a probability of success and then you have to reverse engineer. There's a fixed rate of return assumption that corresponds to a probability of success. 
but you don't really know what you're assuming about a fixed rate of return. I've actually come to like a simpler approach, which is just you decide on your fixed rate of return that you're comfortable assuming and see if your plan works with that fixed rate of return. So it either the plan works or it doesn't work. But if I'm comfortable, okay, if if I assume a 3% return on my investments at retirement and my plan works with that, I think that ultimately is an easier way to, to be thinking about it than I've got this Monte Carlo black box where I can't really see what's happening inside. I see it tells me a 90% success rate, but I don't really know what that means about like what truly are the scenarios that I'm the plan works, what, what's going on in that other 10% where the plan doesn't work. So I think it's it's easier to just use a fixed rate of return, which ultimately, again, like I was saying, like the, the first thing I said, every, in every Monte Carlo result, well, they're volatile returns, but you can figure out what was the fixed rate, or, fixed rate of return that corresponds to that volatile return sequence. And so there is a mapping there. It's just, you have no idea what, what that mapping is. And that's, I think Monte Carlo is fine, but personally, I prefer just working from a fixed rate of return. Interesting. Wade, you had talked a little bit about long-term care costs in the U.S. and, and um, how different that is between Canada, but also how, how much of an issue it is for retirees in the United States. We do hear quite a lot of questions from, from our retirees about concerns about long-term care. There is sort of multiple um options for long-term care here in Canada, one of which is, is paid out of pocket or, or some version of which is paid out of pocket. Uh, do you have a perspective from the U.S. as to how retirees should approach this unknown, potentially large future cost that we can maybe adapt to Canada as we talk to folks? Yeah, the way I do approach that is to think about this idea of reserves, like for you to feel comfortable with your financial plan, how much do you want to have set aside to, that you could fund with, without disrupting your the ability to have the rest of your plan work. Now there there is some trade off that if someone experiences a long term care event, they're not going to be going on vacations and things. So you can take some of the budget, their regular spending budget, shift that over to long term care. But then how much more would you want to be able to cover to meet that sort of long term care expense? And in the U.S., there's these annual estimates done that show like the average national cost of a, a stay, an annual uh, nursing home stay in the ballpark of $110,000. And so I might think about like to feel really comfortable with my plan, I'd wanna be able to fund, and this is where you just, everyone's gonna have a different scenario, but say five years in a nursing home, now that could easily add up to more than $500,000. But then that's what I would be thinking about. Do I have, excess wealth beyond my other goals of $500,000 to fund that potential type of an expense. If I do, then that's where I start to feel more comfortable that I really have achieved uh, what I need to, to sustain a comfortable retirement. Now insurance offsets some of that cost. You can trade, okay, I'll pay an insurance premium, but then if I experience that significant long-term care event, I won't have to pay as much out of pocket. And so that's where you can start to evaluate do I want to self-fund? Do I want to use some sort of private insurance as part of that? that? That's the way I would approach thinking about that. Excellent. Wade, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you again for your time. Um, can you tell folks where they can find you or, and or your research? Where, where's the best place to go? Sure. So my personal website is retirementresearcher.com and it's all one word, retirement researcher. And I've also published a number of books. They are more about like US-based institutions like the US tax code, US social security and so forth. But my most recent book, really a comprehensive look at retirement topics. It's called the Retirement Planning Guidebook. It's um, got a black cover with a kind of image of a map on the front. It's the, the Retirement Planning Guidebook and it's covering all the different aspects of having a retirement plan. So not just the finances, but it's, it starts with retirement styles. It looks at different retirement risks, looks at what are the financial goals and, and are there assets to fund those goals, looks at the different investing and annuity strategies, the social security, healthcare, and this is in a U.S. specific, but Medicare related decisions in the U.S., long-term care planning, housing decisions, the non-financial aspects of having a 
successful retirement outside of finances, so having purpose and passion for retirement. And then finishes with kind of a, an overview of all these considerations kind of laid out at different stages of life, what to be doing, annual checklists of what to be doing and so forth. And so really trying to provide a comprehensive look at all the different aspects of building a, a complete retirement plan. Yeah, wow, there's a lot in there for sure. Um, we'll get to maybe just our last question here that I've got. Marshall, anything on your end? Um, okay. I'm okay. Good. Wade, I love asking a final question. We're big fans of being optimistic towards the future. We think there's lots of benefits to that. What are you an optimist about right now, either in your life or your work? Well, I'm, I'm optimistic about you know, people. We hear a lot about just the market returns may be lower in the future, but I think people can still have a great retirement and it's may not always mean spending as much, but the standard of living one has doesn't always correlate to spending. Of course, being, being able to spend more helps, but people can find ways to maybe cut some expenses here or there and still have quite a satisfying retirement experience. And so I am optimistic that even with all these financial market strains that people still have that ability to, to find a, a great retirement lifestyle if that's really what they wanna pursue. Very good. Thank you very much, Wade, for your time today. Um, your research and your writings have helped us become better advisors and have better conversation with clients. And uh, for that, I, I want to say thanks. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Wade. Have a great day. You too. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Wade. That was a great conversation.